Good evening, my friends. I hope it is midnight wherever you are. Let's imagine that it's the witching hour. Why don't you turn out all the lights? My name is Josh Hitchens, and I am your host tonight. Welcome to Going Dark Theater. This is a podcast about finding the humanity behind the horror. And this midnight, I will tell you the tale of the terror in room 1046. A large house, filled with many rooms, each alike, but occupied by different souls night after night. That is how a creepy character in the television series Twin Peaks describes a hotel. Hotels are places where we like to believe we are safe, In fact, we are putting immense trust in our fellow human beings by renting a room for the night. Someone else has the key to your room. Someone could come in and watch you while you sleep. Someone could kill you. With so many people moving in and out of a hotel day and night, Such a person may never be caught. This is exactly what happened in January 1935 at the Hotel President in Kansas City, Missouri. It is an unsolved mystery that is still as perplexing and as haunting today as it was 85 years ago. After listening to this tale, you may feel uneasy the next time you stay in a strange place at night. The hotel president was constructed in Kansas City, Missouri in 1926. It rose 15 stories tall and contained 453 rooms. It was also the first hotel in the city to make its own ice. And in 1928, it was the headquarters for the Republican National Convention, where Herbert Hoover was nominated for President of the United States. He would, of course, go on to win the election. In 
New Year's Day, 1935, was a cold one in Kansas City, and on Wednesday, January 2nd, a man checked into the hotel president, writing his name in the guest book as Roland T. Owen from Los Angeles, California. He was described by witnesses as being between 20 to 35 years old, with dark brown hair and a scar on the left side of his scalp. The man also had a cauliflower ear, a perichondrial hematoma also known as wrestler's ear, since it is a deformity often caused by trauma to the head. Roland T. Owen wore a black overcoat and had no luggage with him. The time of Roland T. Owen's check-in was around 1.20 p.m. Roland T. Owen was given room 1046. It was an inner room that looked down on the hotel president's quiet courtyard rather than the outer rooms which had views of the city streets. Randolph Probst was the bellboy that escorted Roland T. Owen up to his room on the tenth floor. While riding up in the elevator, Owen remarked to Probst that he had stayed at the nearby Muehlebach Hotel the previous night, but thought their price of $5 per night, $95 in today's money, was too expensive. The hotel president's nightly rate was $2, $38 in today's money. Room 1046 measured 12 feet long and 9 feet wide. Inside the room was a bed, a nightstand with a telephone, a dresser, a desk with a chair, another comfy chair by the window, and a bathroom. From the inside pocket of his black overcoat, Roland T. Owen removed a hairbrush, a comb, and a single tube of toothpaste, putting those three objects un on a shelf under the bathroom mirror. Other than the clothes he was wearing, that seemed to be all Owen had with him that day. Bellboy Randolph Probst gave Roland T. Owen the key to room 1046, and the two of them left the room together. Probst realized neither of them had locked the room, so Probst asked Owen to give him the key so he could do so. After locking room 1046, Probst returned the key to Roland T. Owen and then resumed his work. Owen was then seen leaving the hotel. That afternoon, around 2 o'clock p.m., hotel maid Mary Soptic returned to work after her day off. Arriving at room 1046, Mary Soptic found the door locked. 
she knocked on the door, and she heard a man's voice telling her to come in. This surprised Mary, because there had previously been a woman staying in room 1046. Mary entered the room, which was unexpectedly very dark. The shades of the windows were pulled down, blocking out the sunlight, and all the lights were turned off except for the small desk lamp, leaving most of the room in shadows. Roland T. Owen was in this darkened room. Mary apologized and said she could come back later, but Owen said it was all right for her to perform her cleaning duties. While Mary worked, Owen again complained about the high prices of the nearby Mulebach Hotel and asked her about her job. Mary Soptic later said to the police, quote, He was either worried about something or afraid. He always wanted to kind of keep in the dark. Mary Soptic also said that while she was cleaning, Roland T. Owen put on his overcoat and then went into the bathroom to comb his hair. After doing so, he left room 1046, but not before asking Mary to leave the door unlocked, quote, because he was expecting a friend in a few minutes. This is a good time to tell you that the rooms at the Hotel President could only be locked from the outside. Roland T. Owen had been given the key to the room by bellboy Randolph Probst before leaving the hotel after he checked in around 1.20 p.m. Forty minutes later, Maid Mary Soptic found Roland T. Owen in room 1046 with the door locked. When leaving, Owen asked Mary not to lock the door because he was expecting a friend, suggesting perhaps that someone else now possessed the key to room 1046 since Roland T. Owen had been found locked inside of it. Two hours later, around four o'clock p.m., Mary Soptic returned to room 1046 with fresh towels. The door was still unlocked. Inside the room, she saw that Roland T. Owen had returned and was lying on the bed, fully clothed. His eyes were open, but Owen did not speak to her. The room was now completely dark, but thanks to the light coming into the hallway, Mary Soptic noticed a handwritten note lying on the bedside table by the telephone, According to Mary's statement, the note read, Don, 
I will be back in 15 minutes. Wait. Mary put the fresh towels in the bathroom and then quickly left room 1046. Mary Soaptick returned to room 1046 the next morning, Thursday, January 3rd, 1935. This time she found the door locked. Mary opened the door with her passkey and entered, shocked to find Roland T. Owen in the room, sitting in the chair by the window. As before... The room was dark. Someone else had locked Roland T. Owen in room 1046 again. While Mary cleaned and took the dirty towels, she heard the telephone ring. Owen got up from the chair to answer it, and Mary Soapdick overheard him say to someone unknown, quote, no, Don, I don't want to eat. I am not hungry. I just had breakfast. No, I am not hungry. At four o'clock p.m. on Thursday, January 3rd, Mary Soptic returned to room 1046 with fresh towels. She heard the voices of two men talking inside the room. She knocked on the door and heard a man's voice, not Owen's, say, Who is it? Mary explained that she was the maid and had come to deliver fresh towels to the room, the man's voice, rough again, not Owen's, replied, We don't need any. Even though Mary Soapdick knew room 1046 currently had no towels, she took the hint and left the two men alone. That night, around 11 o'clock p.m., a man named Robert Lane was driving through the city when he noticed a man flagging down his car. Although it was a cold January night, Lane saw the man was only dressed in an undershirt, pants, and shoes. Lane pulled over and the man said, quote, I'm sorry, I thought you were a taxi. Will you take me to where I can get a cab? Robert Lane said yes, and the underdressed man got into the back seat of his car. Lane said to the man, quote, You look as if you've been in it bad. Lane noticed a deep scratch on one of the man's arms and saw the man cupping his hands as if he was trying to keep blood from dripping onto Lane's back seat. The man said to Lane, quote, I'll kill that tomorrow. The newspaper reporting Robert Lane's statement printed this expletive as a dash. 
if we were able to know what the strange man had actually said, it may answer many unknown questions. Upon seeing a taxi, the man jumped out of Robert Lane's car. Lane would later identify the injured man he'd had this strange encounter with at 11 p.m. on January 3rd as Roland T. Owen. On the same night of January 3rd, 1935, a woman named Jean Owen had started to feel sick while shopping in the city. Instead of driving home, she checked into the hotel president and was given room 1048, the room next door to Roland T. Owen. No relation. Late that night, Jean Owen was kept awake. She, quote, heard a lot of noise which sounded like it was on the same floor and consisted largely of men and women talking loudly and cursing. When the noise continued, I was about to call the desk clerk, but decided not to. A little before midnight, an elevator operator named Charles Blocker began his graveyard shift at the hotel president. As the night of January 3rd turned into the early hours of January 4th, 1935, Blocker noted there was a loud party going on in room 1055. Directly from his testimony, Elevator operator Charles Blocker reports on what happened between 1 o'clock a.m. and 4.30 a.m. I took a woman that I recognized as being a woman who frequents the hotel with different men in different rooms. It is my impression from this woman's actions that she is a commercial woman. I took her to the tenth floor, and she made inquiries for room 1026. About five minutes after this, I received a signal to come back to the tenth floor. Upon arriving there, I met this same woman, and she wondered why he wasn't in his room, because he had called her and had always been very prompt in his appointments, and she wondered if he might be in 1024 because the light was on in there. She remained about 30 or 40 minutes. Then I received a signal to go back to the 10th floor. I went back, and this same woman appeared there and came down on the elevator with me and left the elevator at the lobby. About an hour later, she returned in company with a man, and I took them to the ninth floor. I later received a signal to go to the ninth floor at about 4.15 a.m., 
and this same woman came down from the ninth floor and left the hotel. In a period of about 15 minutes later, a man came down the elevator from the ninth floor complaining that he couldn't sleep and was going out for a while. Neither the commercial woman, a quaint euphemism for a sex worker, or the man who left soon after her, were known to be guests of the hotel. The woman was wearing a sealskin coat with a fur collar, and desk clerk James Haddon identified her as a woman he had seen many times previously, quote, in and out of the hotel at various times and at various hours of the night and early mornings. The man encountered by Charles Blocker, wore a brown overcoat and shoes. Whether this man and woman had anything to do with what happened to Roland T. Owen in the early morning hours of January 4, 1935, in room 1046, remains unknown. At 7 o'clock a.m. on Friday, January 4, 1935, a woman named Della Ferguson came on duty at the hotel president's switchboard. She was about to place the requested wake-up call to room 1046 when she noticed the light for that room was on, indicating that the phone was off its hook. Della Ferguson sent bellboy Randolph Probst, who had coincidentally checked Roland T. Owen into room 1046 two days earlier, to the tenth floor to see what was wrong. Randolph Probst found the door to room 1046 locked again from the outside, and a do not disturb sign was hanging on the doorknob. Probst knocked loudly on the door, and then he heard the voice of Roland T. Owen saying from inside, Come in. Turn on the lights. With the door remaining locked, Probst shouted at Owen to hang up the phone and left to report back to Della Ferguson. Ferguson said the man in room 1046 was probably just drunk. An hour later, at 8.30 a.m., the phone in room 1046 was still off its hook. Della Ferguson sent another bellboy, Harold Pike, up to the 10th floor with a pass key. Upon entering room 1046, Harold Pike found the room, as always, in darkness. 
He saw Roland T. Owen lying on the bed completely naked. The phone on the table next to the bed was off its hook. Thanks to light spilling in from the hallway, Pike also noticed dark stains on the bedsheets. He thought Roland T. Owen looked drunk. Harold Pike hung up the phone and left room 1046. Two hours later, at 10.30 a.m., the switchboard operator noticed the telephone in room 1046 was again off its hook. Bellboy Randolph Probst was sent to investigate, and this time he had a key. When Randolph Probst unlocked the door of room 1046, he found a scene of horror he would never be able to forget. This is what he said. When I entered the room, this man, Roland T. Owen, was within two feet of the door, naked, on his knees and elbows, holding his head in his hands. I noticed blood on his head. I then turned the light on, placed the telephone receiver on the hook. I looked around and saw blood on the walls, on the bed, and in the bathroom. This frightened me and I immediately left the room and went downstairs. Randolph Probst informed the manager of the hotel president, and together the two of them went up to room 1046. They tried to open the door, but it would only open about six inches. It appeared as if Roland T. Owen had collapsed in front of it. They called the police. In an impeccably researched retelling of this case for the Kansas City Public Library blog, writer James Horner paints an indelible portrait of what the police found when they entered room 1046. Owen had been restrained with cord around his neck, his wrists, and his ankles, and looked like he had been tortured. Knife wounds bled on his chest from over his heart. One of these had punctured his lung. His skull was fractured on the right side where he had been struck more than once. There was bruising around the neck, suggesting strangling as part of the torture. 
Besides the blood that was on the bed itself, more blood had spattered onto the wall next to the bed, and a small amount of blood could even be seen on the ceiling above the bed. When Dr. Flanders arrived, he cut the cords around Owen's wrists. His hands freed, Owen turned on the bathtub spigot which Flanders shut off. Detective Johnson asked Owen who had been in the room with him. Owen, semi-conscious and barely able to talk, said, Nobody. How had he gotten hurt? I fell against the bathtub. Had he tried to commit suicide? No, he mumbled, and then started to slip fully into unconsciousness. By the time Roland T. Owen arrived at the hospital, he was in a coma. He never woke up from it. The man known as Roland T. Owen died shortly after midnight on Saturday, January 5th, 1935. Inside the bloody murder room 1046 at the Hotel President, this is what was found by police. A woman's hairpin, a safety pin, an unsmoked cigarette, an unopened bottle of sulfuric acid, there was also a broken water glass in the bathroom sink missing one jagged piece. On the receiver of the telephone, police lifted four small fingerprints that could not be identified. They believed those fingerprints may have belonged to a woman. These are all the things that were suspiciously missing from the crime scene in room 1046. All of Roland T. Owen's clothing was gone, stolen, missing. The only thing left in the room was the label of his necktie, which had been cut off. The label read, Botany Worsted Mills Company of Passiac, New Jersey. All of the soap, shampoo, and towels were also absent from room 1046. The murder weapons, whatever they had been, were also never found. 
Since most of the blood had dried by the time Roland T. Owen was found, it was estimated that he received the wounds that eventually killed him between 3 o'clock and 4 o'clock a.m., the same time the mysterious man and woman had been seen leaving the hotel president. Police soon discovered that Roland T. Owen was not the dead man's real name. Going off the lead that Owen had stayed at the Muhlebach Hotel on January 1st, they discovered that the man had checked into that hotel under another alias, Eugene K. Scott, also listing his residence as Los Angeles. Both names were determined to be false. To try and discover the murdered man's identity, a public viewing of the body was arranged at the Melody McGilly Funeral Home. The mystery of Room 1046 was front-page news, and some sources say that up to 300 people came to look. It was at this time that Robert Lane recognized the corpse as the injured man he had given a ride to on the night of January 3rd. It was also determined the dead man had also been seen in the company of two women at a bar on one of the nights before he was killed. By March of 1935, the case was already beginning to grow cold. The funeral home announced in the newspapers that they would finally be burying the unidentified dead man in a potter's field. However, the funeral home received an anonymous phone call. It was a man's voice, and he asked that the burial be delayed so he could send money to ensure the murdered man received a proper burial. The caller said he wanted the dead man to be buried in Memorial Park Cemetery so he would be near his sister. When asked why the mystery man had been killed, the caller replied, quote, Cheaters usually get what's coming to them. And then he hung up. On March 23, 1935, the funeral home received an envelope containing $25, $500 in today's money, wrapped in newspaper. It was enough to pay for a proper burial for the unknown murder victim of Room 1046. Around the same time, a florist received $5 to send 13 American Beauty roses to the funeral of the murdered man. With the money, 
was a note written in disguised handwriting. The note read, quote, Love forever, Louise. Policemen were the only attendees at the funeral. Several officers disguised themselves as cemetery groundskeepers in the following days to see if anyone visited the unknown man's grave. But no one ever did. The Kansas City Journal Post then published an article saying that the Room 1046 murder victim had been buried in a pauper's grave. The newspaper offices then received an anonymous phone call from a woman. She informed them that their story had been wrong and that the unknown man's funeral had fl and flowers had been paid for. When asked who she was, the woman replied, Never mind, I know what I'm talking about. He got into a jam. Then she hung up. A year and a half later, in the autumn of 1936, the mysterious man who had died in room 1046 was finally identified. His name was Artemis Ogletree, and his mother Ruby identified him from a photograph of his body that had been included in a national newspaper about the murder. Ruby Ogletree had not seen her son Artemis since he left their Birmingham, Alabama home in April 1934. His plan had been to hitchhike to California Despite all the witnesses who saw Artemis Ogletree in Kansas City saying he looked between 20 and 35 years old, Artemis was actually only 17 years old when he was killed. What was even stranger is that Ruby Ogletree had received several letters from her son Artemis after he had been murdered. Ruby thought the letters were odd at the time. They were typewritten, and her son did not know how to type. The language of the letters also included a lot of slang, which was not the way Artemis Ogletree had spoken in life. The first letter came from Chicago, the second from New York, saying that Artemis was going to travel to Europe. In August of 1935, Eight months after her son was killed in room 1046, Ruby Ogletree received a phone call from a man 
living in Memphis, Tennessee, who said that Artemis had saved his life and was well and happily married in Cairo, Egypt. Ruby thought the man seemed odd on the phone, but he did seem to know intimate details about her son. She gave the name the man identified himself by to the police, who hold that secret to this day. In conversations with Ruby Ogletree, the police were able to discover and verify that Artemis, her son, had stayed at another Kansas City hotel, the St. Regis, before he went to the hotel president. Artemis Ogletree had shared a room with another man, whose identity remains unknown. In 1937, New York City police arrested a man named Joseph Martin. He had murdered a younger man in a hotel room they had shared, putting the corpse inside a trunk to be shipped to Memphis, Tennessee. This was also the location of the mysterious man who had called Ruby Ogletree in 1935, and Joseph Martin's writing style also matched the style of the typewritten letters she had received from someone reporting to be her son Artemis after he was killed. Perhaps most intriguing of all, one of the aliases used by Joseph Martin was the name Donald Kelso. Was this the same Don Artemis Ogletree was involved with in Kansas City? And if so, what was their relationship? We will never know. The police did not find enough evidence to charge Joseph Martin with the murder of Artemis Ogletree, and the case went cold again. It is still considered an active investigation to this day. Who was Artemis Ogletree? His life, as well as his death, remains a mystery. Why did he leave home at 17 years old? What was it about Los Angeles, California that made him want to go there? Was Artemis romantically involved with a man named Don who then killed him? Or 
Did Artemis wrong one or two women who later collaborated to torture him and end his life? Who was the man who paid for a proper funeral? And who was the woman who sent roses with the note, Love forever, Louise? What or who was Artemis Ogletree afraid of in his last days? Who kept locking him inside room 1046 over and over again? Why, before he lost consciousness forever, did Artemis Ogletree refuse to admit that anyone had attacked him? And finally, why did the killer, whoever he, she, or they were, continue writing letters to his mother, Ruby Ogletree, after Artemis had been murdered, perhaps indicating the killer had some intimate personal knowledge of him. All things we will probably never know. Ruby Ogletree died in 1963, never knowing what happened to her 17-year-old son Artemis in the final year of his too brief life. In 2003 or 2004, a Kansas City historian named James Horner, who worked at the public library, received a final anonymous phone call about the Room 1046 mystery that came from out of state. Horner wrote about this eerie incident in his blog post in 2012. This person and another had been helping itemize the belongings of an elderly person who had recently died. They found a box with several newspaper clippings about the case. The caller said that, besides the newspaper clippings, something mentioned in the newspaper stories was also in the box. The caller tantalizingly refrained from telling me what that something was. The caller hung up and never called back. The murder of Artemis Ogletree remains unsolved. But not Forgotten. Next time we meet. I will continue this season of unsolved mysteries 
Traveling to Los Angeles, California in 1947 to examine the tale of the Black Dahlia. If you enjoy the podcast, I highly recommend right leaving a rating and a review if the spirit moves you. You can also like Going Dark Theater on Facebook. If you want to support the podcast and see other spooky things I'm writing as well as get episode transcripts, I have a Patreon. Patreon.com slash Josh Hitchens. I am your host, Josh Hitchens, and you've been listening to Going Dark Theater, where we find the humanity behind the horror. And until next time we meet, my friends, I wish you all very pleasant dreams.